You are listening to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Wine-Banks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations with experts on various issues facing our country today. On our show, we will be discussing campaigning in this global pandemic, um, the importance of winning battleground states like Wisconsin, um, how Democrats can win big in Wisconsin against the aggressive push by Republicans, and Trump's recent visit to Kenosha, Wisconsin, and what his visit and messaging means for the political strategy for Wisconsin Democrats as we head into this election on November 3rd. Um, we are really excited to be joined by I think, who I think is a perfect guest for this topic, um, Ben Wickler. He is the Wisconsin Democratic Party chair. Previously, Ben served as the senior advisor and Washington director of MoveOn.org, where he led uh, MoveOn's campaign to prevent the repeal of the Affordable Care Act and the gutting of Medicare. So first, thank you so much for being here, Ben. It's such a pleasure to be with both of you. I love uh, the concept of intergenerational politics and the reality of the show. So very pleased to join you. Really excited, yeah. Um, so I will kick it off to Jill to kick off our conversation today, and then uh, we'll go from there. Great, thank you, Victor, and thank you, Ben. Um, I'm very happy that you're willing to spend some time with us today. And I wanna start by saying that I was very hesitant about what a virtual convention would be like, and um, was very worried that it wouldn't work, and it really did. All of you from the Wisconsin um, uh, background people who worked on this, uh, and I'm sure especially you as the head of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin, made it really terrific. Even though it was virtual, I know it exceeded both victors in my expectations and its pacing and its substance were really amazing. So thank you for that. I wanna say first though, the convention, so at the Democratic Party of Wisconsin, we took on one particular thing, which was building a training session um, to train the you know, folks who want to be campaign workers, who want to be volunteers in digital organizing, communications, campaign basics. We worked with a group called The Arena and uh, ultimately partnered with the convention team and the Biden for President campaign. That was awesome. We had 18,000 people involved. The convention itself was planned by the convention committee and the host committee led by Joe Salmanis and by um, several different folks in the course of it, um, including my, my dear friend, Teresa Vilmain. And the work that those folks did, and ultimately with this super producer who's produced Super Bowl halftime shows and the you know Tony Awards, Ricky Kirshner, who's just, I think, the, the sort of creative visionary behind it, what they did in some of the hardest circumstances, people who moved across the country into apartments in Milwaukee and then suddenly couldn't leave those apartments, uh, people from Wisconsin, from the community who were doing outreach and suddenly it had to be virtual outreach to, to folks across Milwaukee, I'm just in awe of, of what they pulled off. I had the chance to sneak in on the first night and watch from the control room and it was just breathtaking. It was so much more technically complex than a regular convention. Normally there are a few dozen satellite uplinks. This had like 600 something satellite oh, uplinks. Wow. Yeah, it was this like weaving, it was like watching someone weave a tapestry in real time of all these different elements. And yeah, I'm, I'm blown away. I deserve, I'm, I'm, I have literally none of the credit goes to me. I, I really want to get into why you personally yes. gotten involved in politics um, as, as a way that I think might give us some insight to attract mm -hmm. other people to get involved. So the first thing I'll say is advice for any parent 
I got involved in politics first because my parents cared a lot about politics. And we talked about it at the dinner table. Uh, my dad made a habit of reading the whole newspaper every day. And you know, my mom devoured the newspaper and they'd read books and argue about things. And, um, and my, my stepdad entered the fray and had very strong politics. And uh, you know, my, ultimately my stepmom too. Uh, my first political memory is going to a Jesse Jackson rally with my mom when I was seven in 1988. Wow in on the steps of the uh, Wisconsin Capitol. And my mom's best friend, my mom's a social worker and sort of family therapist, psychologist. Her best friend was a fellow social work professor who ran for Congress when I was 11. And her name is Ada Deer. She is an American Indian woman who had led um, the fight to get Congress to re-recognize her tribe after the Menominee Nation had been terminated by the federal government. She actually got a Menominee Restoration Act passed through Congress and signed by the president and then decided to run for Congress. And she became the first American Indian woman to win a congressional uh, primary. And she was, as the former leader of the Menominee Nation, uh, when she won, she, her speech began, I've been waiting a long time to say this, me nominee. <laughs> <laughs> and I was standing a few feet away from her when she gave that speech. And I just remember wow. it so vividly. And then seeing it splashed across the front page of the newspaper the next day, I was, you know, stuffing envelopes and like putting up yard signs. It wasn't like I was the center of the action, but I just, I just loved it. And I think that experience then helped get me hooked uh, by middle school. Uh, Madison's the home of the onion. Originally the, the yes. satirical, it was, a, it was a newspaper originally. At first it was on campus. So I love the onion and in middle school, my friends and I started an underground satirical student newspaper, sort of modeled after it, that got into a lot of like political campaigning stuff. We had another one in high school, and then my friends and I started writing for The Onion in, late in high school. So that was sort of one avenue in on the satire side. Um, but I also got involved in a series of kind of fights and campaigns as both an activist and as a, um, uh, as, as a person who cared who was in office. So... Um, there was this moment that I vividly remember. I was sitting at a coffee shop the summer after my freshman year of high school, and a an older kid, the next table over, asked my friend Becca and I whether we knew what was happening with Coca-Cola making a deal with our school district to market to students at the school. And we said no. And he said, look, they, they have been granted a monopoly. They're going to like give out co coupons in class to try to get you to buy more of their products. This is all a way to like get money for the school, but it's ridiculous. You shouldn't be like you know, the advertising subjects being served up. And my, my friends and I started a campaign to try to get the contract canceled. And we used our student newspaper to editorialize against it. And we like wrote letters to the editor of the other newspapers. And we went to school board meetings and protested and gave speeches and they did cancel it. And the experience of seeing our work turn into actual policy changes was like, you know, it's an amazing feeling. It's a feeling that you're bigger than, you're part of something bigger than yourself. And the next year, uh, I, I decided that this had happened in part because students had no input in the first place. So uh, again, a group of friends and I started a campaign to get a student seat created on the school board in Madison. And we worked with the school district staff and got citywide elections to create a student Senate and have a student rep on the school board. And that all passed. And then we realized that the school board had done this because the state's school funding formula was so bad. And so we started a group called Students United in Defense of Schools that organized students across the state. It was a name chosen for the acronym SUDS and our slogan was, it's time to clean up school funding, which we thought was a, a good idea at the time. So, um, so SUDS, we like 
brought all these students to testify to the Joint Finance Committee of the Wisconsin State Legislature. And they approved $20 million in special education funds that year, you know, sort of responding to our, our organizing. So it was just this feeling of our sort of power as, as members of the community, even though we were kids. And doing that at the same time as volunteering on campaigns. Um, I, I volunteered on a governor's race in high school. I volunteered for a congressional campaign for this state legislature, state legislator who I was a big fan of, who um, I, I helped organize debates about issues, public policy issues affecting teenagers in high school. And this one state legislator always came and won the debates. So when she ran for Congress, my friends and I volunteered on her race, and her name is Tammy Baldwin. She's now our senator from Wisconsin. Oh, my goodness. Oh my God. Uh, and all That's of that. That's amazing. I, it was, well, I mean, what a gift to have someone like that as a local state <laughs> legislator when you're a kid. Um, all of that instilled in me just a huge sense of idealism about how democracy could work. And, you know, there's so many things that can make people disillusioned and cynical. And I, I just had the opposite experience. I sort of have had a series of experiences that have made me more convinced that there are ways to actually create change. And once you discover you can do that, it's hard to think about anything else. And it really just gives you this palpable sense of like, it is worth engaging because you can make a difference. Uh, and I think that's, that sort of carried me through my whole life. Well, I hope everybody hears that and takes it to heart because I too have seen how public reaction, public input can make a big difference. It is what turned around the Watergate case, going back to before you were born, um, and I was already a lawyer on the case. Um, it was public reaction that forced President Nixon to turn over the tapes and to hire a new special prosecutor after he fired the first special prosecutor. Um, and, and I will say for me, it's similar. My parents were uh, active in politics and I listened to them. I heard them discussing it and it just sounded really interesting. And my third grade teacher, um, talked a lot because um, Adlai Stevenson, who was from Illinois, was running for president. And because of the Illinois connection, we talked about it in school. And when he lost, I cried. And I was only in third grade, but it, it was a personal affront to me. Unlike you, my first effort at a political activity was I wanted to abolish zoos because there was a gorilla at Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago named Sinbad, and it cost more to feed him a day than a family of four on welfare got for a week. And I just thought it was a bad use of public funds. This was obviously not a successful campaign, uh, so I didn't have such good luck on my first uh, try, but I do think it's so important to be involved and to see the difference that each individual can make. And that brings us back to, let's go back to this year and to the, the convention and your role in the convention. And um, what was the main overall message, do you think, of the Democratic convention? Um, I mean, there was a platform. So that's part of the message is everybody should read the platform that the Democrats have um, and should check to see if they can find a Republican equivalent. Um, but what principles do you think came out of the convention that you were involved in? The, the big message that's sort of the through line for everything in the convention that I saw is a, a kind of direct line between a character issue and a public policy vision. 
And the character issue is the fundamental idea that Joe Biden is a, is a decent person who is capable of empathy and cares about people other than himself. And so you hear at all these different steps, the, the sort of stories of the way that he engaged with other human beings and you watched him engage with other human beings, sometimes people experiencing great pain and challenge in their lives. And then it connected to his vision that comes from that fundamental decency, a, a vision that is deeply inclusive of people across race and across identities, of people all over the country, of people even who don't agree with him politically, from, you know, from Republicans to folks further on the left than him, all knowing that he cares about them, that he will listen, that he is capable of connecting with people. And the contrast between that and the fundamental character of President Trump, which is where it is always about him and his policies have constantly served himself and people maybe just like him and left others out. And I, I think there was a kind of really elegant like symmetry and simplicity to that, that core message that was laced throughout all these different speeches. And in a way it became an argument that to care about everyone is the idea of democracy. And the concept that Trump is a threat to democracy fundamentally flows from the idea that he doesn't, you know, as president, it is all about him and not about the people who elected him. The idea of a democracy is that it's the demos, the people that are supposed to actually rule. And with Biden, he actually does care about those people. And so it will be the public's, uh, the public's person who, who's in office if he's elected. So uh, following up on that um, and talking about President Trump, because you're in Wisconsin um, and President Trump was in Wisconsin. Uh, he went to Kenosha yesterday in the aftermath of the Jacob Blake shooting by the police. Um, he compared the shooting of Jacob Blake seven times to a golfer choking on a crucial shot. And then he defended the killing of two by a vigilante. Um, and he didn't defend the killing. He well, I guess he sort of did, but he definitely defended the killer. He defended Rittenhouse. Um, and so I, I think maybe it's, we should mention for our audience that during the Republican convention, we saw the constant pushing of the narrative that the violence was gonna only increase if Joe Biden becomes president. And um, then on Monday of this week, uh, Biden finally answered that. Um, he said, and I just want to quote some of this as background for my question. He said, President, Trump's long, President Trump long ago forfeited any moral leadership in this country. He can't stop the violence because for years he has fomented it. He may believe mouthing the words law and order makes him strong, but his failure to call on his own supporters to stop acting as an armed militia in this country shows you how weak he is. Does anyone believe there will be less violence in America if Donald Trump is reelected? So um, when Trump came to your state, he did repeat the same message when he met with elected officials in Kenosha, and uh, the, even though he was asked not to come by your governor and local elected officials. Um, but he said, blaming reckless far left politicians who continue to push the destructive message that our nation and law enforcement are oppressive or racist. So first I wanna ask in Wisconsin, what are the Democrats doing to counter the false narrative? 
it's such a fundamental question because when you watch what's happening, when you watch Trump supporters bringing, you know, military weapons into situations where people are are protesting and then blood is spilled, uh, you can see the really dark path that he's taking us on. And Trump, Kellyanne Conway, Trump's advisor, said the more rioting and chaos and, and violence in the streets, the better for us because it draws the contrast on law and order. And what Biden is saying is that this is Trump's America that we are watching. The, a situation where there's so little trust that people take it upon themselves to act in violent ways, that is the Trump, that is the Trump world, a fundamentally zero-sum game where it's you know, us against them at every turn. And Biden's America is a country where people can bridge differences and come together. And I think the, the first thing is making that contrast really clear. And even you know, during Trump's speech, there was this amazing contrast between Trump sitting there over and over refusing to say Jacob Blake's name and refusing to condemn the, the shooting of this father in front of his children in the back. And outside, people line dancing and celebrating and giving out free food and getting free haircuts and having a kind of community celebration that was about healing and coming together and cleaning things up. And uh, the local Democratic Party in Kenosha, Kenosha County uh, has been doing voter registration drives and cleanup days and supporting you know, folks painting these beautiful mur murals on, on boarded up windows. And there's a spirit that is shining through. And I think lifting up that spirit, it's Democrats don't win when we out scare the other side. We don't win when people feel even more fearful of, of you know, Trump than they do of, uh, they're made to feel of us. They, they vote for Democrats when they have a sense of their own power and agency in the world and the sense of community and love and the sense that we can come together and be better than this. And I think that that's, um, that's step one. Step two is that ultimately elections are about the voters, not the candidates. And if you ask people about the struggles in their own lives, they are directly connected to the decisions made and the lack of leadership by this president. I mean, I'm saying this right now from my basement where I'm working because my office is closed with my kids upstairs, uh, hopefully asleep by now, uh, who are in virtual school because the COVID pandemic has not been brought under control. And the president at every turn wanted to not spook the stock market and so he played down the threat of the pandemic instead of getting a handle on it. And every single person's life has been affected by it. Economically, their health, people's lives have been lost. I mean, so much of our society has been transformed. And ultimately, the message that Joe Biden will take other people seriously enough to, to, to work to address these problems, it's, it's kind of an argument around competence that Trump is in over his head um, and about values that, that Trump is, you know, thinking about the folks who've actually done very well financially during the pandemic and not about the, the plight of regular folks. That message ultimately is the one that I think that, that carries the day. Um, on election day, if people are thinking about how do we get out of this mess? Do we want four more years of this or do we want change? Uh, then Joe Biden's going to win. And right now, you know, almost every poll suggests that that's the, the track that we're on. We're taking nothing for granted, and I'll talk more about that. But the public has, has kind of made up its mind. Polling is strikingly stable. Um, folks don't want more of what we're getting right now. And I think uh, having someone who does promise a fundamental shift is, is exactly what meets the moment. When you say stable, it's interesting because Victor and I did talk about uh, some recent polls. Big difference between 2016 and 2020 is 
there was a large group of undecideds right after the convention in 2016. And it's, it was almost 20%. Now it's less than seven because people have decided. But so another question is, do you think that Trump's visit to Wisconsin helped him? Did it hurt him? Will it help him bring out the suburban men and women that he is trying to attract? Um, you're there on the ground. So I'm, I'm just wondering what you think. I think my honest answer is that it's too early to tell. Uh, I think that you know, Joe Biden is coming here tomorrow and that will be very big news because this is you know, his, his first travel at this distance since the COVID pandemic hit. Um, and I'm so excited that he's coming to Wisconsin and, and specifically he's going to meet with Jacob Blake's family. He's going to bring a very, very different message than Donald Trump brought. The contrast is going to be very different from a situation where Trump had the stage to himself. Um, I also think we don't know how things are going to play out in, on the ground in communities. We don't know how they'll play out nationally. When you think back to, to late May and June, there was a moment when people were so furious about the, the killing of George Floyd. And there were, you know, there were riots and there were windows smashed and there was violence. We now know some of it driven by white supremacists who were uh, smashing things up and, and posing. Um, but there were a whole bunch of different things happening. And there, were, there was a lot of um, public concern that this was going to make, uh, especially, you know, a lot of white voters respond to a law and order message and, and go to Donald Trump. And then people watched as peaceful protesters who were protesting racism and injustice were, uh, were beaten up and were treated terribly, and including by Trump's own kind of personal security forces right outside the White House, peaceful protesters standing there doing uh, only doing the exact things that the Constitution explicitly protects, who were then tear gassed and driven out for a photo op for Donald Trump. And that whole moment swung public opinion against Trump and against racism and into a, in, into a place that we haven't seen polling go in this country, which is a real searing sense among white voters as well as, as black voters and other people of color, that there was a crisis of racism in our country that needed to be addressed. No one predicted that they would see that just a few weeks before. So it's so clear to me that the end of these stories is not yet written. And I expect twists and turns and a roller coaster. And I would not at all be surprised by polls tightening dramatically for some un yet, uh, as yet unknown reason, something that Trump does. We, we saw the news today that he's telling states to prepare for a vaccine to come out in late October, early November. Who knows whether that'll be effective. But like, there are gonna be so many twists and turns on this thing that it's, I think, um, the important thing is to do what's right at each moment and to have a consistent message to people about how this decision will affect their own lives and, and speak to their own values. Um, and then, you know, you get buffeted by the, the winds of, and, and the whims of this president um, and you have to hold the course through it. Well, it, it, it does seem like uh, Wisconsin is a very key state. The fact that both President Trump and uh, Vice President Biden are coming so early on to Wisconsin does speak volumes. Um, uh, tr Donald Trump won Wisconsin by 0.77 percentage points. So um, obviously you are important because it wouldn't take much to flip that. And you have a lot of electoral votes. And we all know this is a battle for the Electoral College, not for the popular vote because um, Republicans lose the popular vote on many occasions and still, well, 
twice at least in my lifetime have won the uh, election despite that. So as chair of the Wisconsin Democratic Party, there's a lot of weight on your shoulders. Uh, what are you doing to flip Wisconsin blue? Are you going out after building up the turnout um, and is among particular groups within the party or what, what exactly are you doing? Wisconsin is, uh, it's such a closely divided state that you kind of have to do everything. And let me explain what I mean by that. Um, if you look at the last five presidential elections, Wisconsin has been decided by less than one percentage point three out of the five times. It was the closest state in the country in 2004. It was even closer in 2000. No one noticed because Florida was closer still. Um, and then in 2016, it was you know Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, the, the sort of blue wall. Wisconsin went by 22,748 votes for Trump. Wow. Not a lot of votes, a couple votes per precinct around the state. And what that means is that if a, if a um, particular group of voters is 1% of the state, that group could determine who wins the presidential election. Uh, that means that Democrats can't just drive up turnout in cities, although they have to. They can't just fight for swing voters in suburbs, although they have to. They can't just try to drive down Trump's huge margins in rural areas. They have to do that too. They can't focus just on white voters. They can't, uh, they can't focus just on black voters or Latino voters or Asian American Pacific Islanders or tribal nations. We have strategies and teams and work in every community around the state, in large communities as well as small, across lines of race, across generations. Um, and you just kind of have to do that in, in Wisconsin. It seems pretty clear that the Republican strategy is to try to hold like tread water in suburbs where they've been, whether Trump has been bleeding to suppress the vote in cities, especially in communities of color, and then to drive up these giganto margins in rural areas. And so, uh, you know, if we stop them from succeeding, the, the extent to which we stop each of those strategies from working affects our chance of winning overall. Mm -hmm. uh, the striking thing is if you look at 2016, unlike some other battleground states like Pennsylvania, in Wisconsin, Trump underperformed. He got fewer votes than five of the previous six presidential candidates in our state. You got fewer votes than Bush or Kerry did in 04, fewer votes than Obama both times, fewer votes than Romney. Hillary Clinton underperformed even more. But essentially, a lot of Wisconsin said none of the above. There were tons of people who didn't vote or voted third party in that election. And so our case, like, I would love to win a bunch of Obama-Trump voters. I would also love to win a bunch of Obama-to-nobody voters. Um, and then there's a lot of people who voted third party as a kind of like box on both your houses act. And uh, we're, we're talking to all those different folks and to folks who we don't know how they're going to vote uh, because we're finding a lot of them support Biden. And if you look at the numbers among independents and swing voters and uh, intermittent voters, that's a lot of where the strength is coming from that you can see in the polls right now. Uh, but we're under no illusions that this is going to be easy. And Wisconsin has rules that are sort of structurally bent towards helping Republicans intentionally by uh, Scott Walker when he was governor here. That was a big priority. So things like how do you request an absentee ballot in Wisconsin, unlike other states, you need to take a picture of your voter ID and upload the picture to a web form in order to request your absentee ballot through the mail, which is an absurd requirement because you have to prove your residence in order to register to vote. You don't have to prove that you're like, you've already done it, <laughs> that exact thing in order to get registered in the first place. Now you have to upload a photo of your voter ID to actually get your ballot in the mail. All these things that Republicans have done to deter voting, wow. we have to kind of help people through the labyrinth to get to the uh, to get to the goal at the end. 
Well, you have your work cut out for you. That is for sure. Um, and based on how I'm hearing you, uh, I'm sure you're up to it. And, and um, before I turn this back to Victor for some more questions, I just want to say in your honor, um, I'm wearing a, uh, a Jill's pin that is a little donkey for the um, role you play as chair of the Democratic Party in Wisconsin. And um, with that, I'm going to turn it back to Victor. Thank you. Yeah, so I mean, uh, you kind of left off on just the voter suppression that's happening in Wisconsin. You know, we all remember what we uh, saw in Wisconsin during their primary with the massive lines extending for three, four or five hours, you know, around the block. There were, there were huge lines. Um, and, you know, since Wisconsin's revolting scenes during the primary, sadly, as you know, there have been numerous attempts made by Republicans in state like Georgia to continue to suppress the vote, whether it be by vote by mail, as you were saying, or um, reducing the number of polling locations in a town. So I guess as the chair of the Democratic party of Wisconsin, um, how do you think Democrats should be pushing back on this massive effort um, of voter suppression from Democrats so that everyone gets a fair and equal chance of voting in this election? It is so vital. And this, you know, it's no mistake to say that this is a fight for democracy as well as for Democrats. Um, one thing I'm really grateful for is that Stacey Abrams started this organization, Fair Fight, to try to fight for the right to vote all over the place. And they had a very uh, I think savvy strategy, which is to actually partner with state parties across the country to build voter protection teams early, very early. So we had a whole team in place in January. And in Wisconsin, that meant that by the time we had our primary, which was also a state Supreme Court election, that team was able to, they were running a, a voter protection hotline that we were advertising to folks who had problems. Uh, they were following up with everybody who contacted them. They were fighting to you know, do everything they could to protect the right to vote. And we were in court all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, ultimately, uh, the night before that election, which uh, I could go on and on about that, that gave us a kind of dress rehearsal for the fall. And then the Biden campaign, you know, wrapped up the primary and fully integrated with what we'd been building at the state party and, uh, you know, took on the team that Fair Fight had worked with us to build. And now we have a much larger voter protection team. So we are getting ready to fight on every front. And that means in court to try to get relief for burdens that make voting inaccessible to people during the pandemic. It means tons of support for people along the way to request and return absentee ballots and then to vote early. And then, you know, some people will vote in person and we want to help them be safe and to do it successfully. Then there's the fight over which ballots actually count. And the thing that Republicans do is they, first they try to sow doubt in people about whether their ballots will ever count if they do try to vote. They try to convince people that the experience of voting will be so terrible that they shouldn't show up. There was, you know, there are dirty tricks Republicans are playing with robocalls telling people misinformation about, you know, things that could go wrong. So we try to stamp that out. You actually don't want to lift up misinformation to debunk it. You want to just tell people the thing that is actually true. Mm -hmm. And uh, then you want to have a ton of volunteers who are there as poll workers to make sure enough precincts are open. So we are phone banking to recruit poll workers uh, six days a week. And then you have poll observers and voter protection attorneys who are there to fight back when Republicans try to disenfranchise people. There's a giant plan that the Trump campaign has been building, something they call their election day operations, to hassle people in line, claim that registrations are invalid. Even if, they, even if the person they hassle does wind up getting to vote, if they make the line move slower, some people will leave the line. And so our message is go, we're going to, you know, bring snacks, bring water, look, look for volunteers to make sure that folks are, are fed and hydrated and 
like, you know, make the experience as, as positive as possible while fighting back against the dirty tricks. Because I think when we have a democracy that actually works, if we deserve to win, we will win. And the GOP seems to have so little confidence in its own message and, and policies and candidates that they can only win if they play these dirty tricks and try to undermine the system. And there's so much going on with just suppressing the vote every day. I think today Donald Trump said that North Carolinans should vote twice in order to um, avoid any um, mishaps with vote by mail. I mean, it's just crazy. And I think Bill Barr was on CNN and he was like, um, voting by mail is like, like playing with fire during this um, election. It's just who knows what they'll be doing from now until election day. But, you know, your, your role with trying to combat that is critical in Wisconsin and um, as well as in other states. Um, I kind of just want to move into um, what you were saying with, uh, you know, your involvement in politics. And, um, you know, we're obviously in this age of COVID-19, um, being a political junkie and anyone who's been kind of following how campaigns operate, um, it's been quite fascinating. Um, usually there are certain ways to engage, you know, in person and attend these meaningful events, but now that's all gone during this pandemic. Um, so for you and Wisconsin Democrats, um, what has the process been like I guess, navigating this virtual campaign? Um, and how are you making this virtual campaigning effective when so much about campaigning depends on, you know, these in-person connections and engagements like door knocking, community events? We were gearing up uh, for the last three years to prepare for the biggest door knocking campaign that our state had ever seen. And in addition, we were gearing up with some really cool new apps to run massive high traffic canvassing operations. So at things like Summerfest, these huge music festivals and community festivals that happen all across our state, of which there are a ton, we were gonna be there in force and get every possible person to register to vote and to commit to voting for you know whoever our nominee would be. All of that went out the window with this pandemic. And the, the thing that I'm that is so painful, but also has this powerful silver lining is that it all went out the window three and a half weeks before our spring election. And so that meant we actually had, um, I mean, it meant that dozens of people at least contracted COVID while voting, it looks like according to contact tracing by public health experts. Uh, but it also meant that we had a dress rehearsal for a totally virtual campaign. And we held nightly webinars, we trained people on how to do virtual phone banking and relational organizing and peer to peer text messaging, all these things where we are connecting with people through their screens, you know, through uh, their phones instead of at their doors. And what we found is that it worked. We were able to help a huge number of people to cast absentee ballots, people who probably wouldn't have voted otherwise. And uh, the, the record previously was like 250,000. There were more than a million ballots cast by mail in the spring election wow. in, in a state Supreme Court race instead of in a presidential election in the fall of 2016. So that, that opportunity to practice how to do virtual organizing, I think was a, a kind of a blessing in disguise. And it meant that starting in that election was April 7th. So for all of April, all of May, all of June, all of July, all of August, it's now September, we've been able to build up an operation that isn't trying to, you know, squeeze tactics that um, people might be really afraid of in these pandemic conditions, um, but rather is actually based on things that we could actually test this spring. And this last weekend, we had thousands of volunteers who made just a huge number of phone calls to folks and walked them through the process of requesting absentee ballots, you know, and found out who they were going to support um, people across Wisconsin, people across the country. So that's that's kind of the core of it. You look for where people gather online. You look for, for, for what medium actually works for people. Um, I will also say at the same time, we have been just in the last few weeks really dramatically ramping up yard sign distribution. And there had been this kind of like, thing among democratic operatives where people say yard signs don't vote. I would say that 
in COVID, it's actually one of the few ways that you can communicate in real life with people. And I think you're going to see Biden signs sprouting up all over the state. Mm -hmm. So, um, and there's a tremendous hunger for them, which I'm really excited about. You can see one of our four by four signs here behind us. Uh, so that, you know, there are some things that, um, that are, that don't involve getting within six feet of other human beings that are still possible to do, uh, but it is a, it's a transformed experience. And uh, I, I think we're going to leave the COVID pandemic once we have a president who actually can deal with the COVID pandemic. We're going to leave it with a richer, broader toolkit that allows more people to engage, even if they can't do the in-person activity we normally rely on. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, um, so I recently just joined the Biden campaign. I think what you were saying, just from an organization, like, or from an organizing standpoint, um, so much of the emphasis has been on just meeting people where they are, um, despite this virtual campaign, um, this virtual operation. So um, it's been a really interesting process just to, I guess, navigate that um, virtual landscape. Um, and one more question, like, before we kind of wrap this discussion up is, you know, in that same vein of meeting people where they are, um, I think the Biden campaign realizes this as well as the DNC is that um, one of the biggest um, demographics of voters that we have to reach um, are younger people. And, you know, based on your experience, you know that, um, you know, as a young organizer yourself, um, you had creative ideas kind of combating these problems. And we've asked many of our guests this question, but you offer that unique perspective of coming from a swing state and being involved in a lot of activism um, when you were younger and right now. So what should Joe Biden and down ballot candidates also be doing to you know, connect with young voters in a way that makes them turn out despite this pandemic? Um, you know, we saw Bernie Sanders do that really effectively with his policies and vision, but how does Biden get them to support him come November? So I do think that uh, policy and vision is a big part of it. And it, when you, there's so many young voters who are engaged because they care about issues. You can, you can, you know, on one hand, you can look at some youth turnout statistics and compared to other age groups think, oh, but then you look at who's actually at the March for Our Lives and who's at the, the Black Lives Matter protest this summer and who is in these huge social movements. They're driven and led by young people. And actually engaging with the, the issues at the core of people's concerns. Climate change is another really powerful example. And I spent years working mostly on climate change as an activist and organizer. Um, communicating about things that people really care about in their lives is a really powerful motivator. And it's an interesting thing because a lot of this campaign is about character and sort of how that character plays out in the way the government conducts itself. But not missing the chance to communicate about policy is really vital. The other thing I would say is that the most powerful messenger is the person that you trust. And uh, for young voters, often that is other young people. So our strategy in the spring, students had all been sent home from colleges, for example. Um, so we had to virtually organize, but our focus was on youth to youth relational organizing where people were contacting people they had relationships with. And I think that that kind of like seriously engaging a lot of youth organizers to uh, work on engaging and turning out people in their own communities. It's just so critical. It's not something where you can parachute in and so many wonderful, wonderful volunteers are not of the same generation as, as young voters. Uh, but having, uh, having authentic messengers who are connecting in the way that, in the format and medium and language uh, that makes sense to them winds up having a much bigger impact. Mm -hmm. I think that should be very, very helpful. Um, I hope it will be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I hope just for younger people listening, um, based on what Ben said, you know, getting involved, um, you know, where you really feel like it's 
you know, you're part of this community bigger than yourself. And no matter what you do, whether it's phone banking, texting your peers, um, you know, your voice really does matter, does have this profound impact um, on who's going to come to the White House come January 2021. Um, before we end, is there anything you'd like our audience um, to know about the importance of winning Wisconsin and also the stakes of this election um, for all generations, um, you know, for any undecided people out there, for any younger people, um, you know, make the case for us. So I'll start with Wisconsin. The Trump campaign, um, the deputy campaign manager said in a recorded a briefing that was recorded and then leaked, it was a private briefing last fall. Uh, he said, Wisconsin's the state that's going to tip this one way or the other. Either we win Wisconsin and we win the election or we lose Wisconsin and we lose the election. If, if you take every state where Trump is more popular than he is here, he can't win unless he adds Wisconsin. If you take every state where Biden is more popular than he is here, he can't win unless he adds Wisconsin to that list too. If you go to 538's, uh, the path to 270, and it has this kind of winding path, the state with the line through it representing 270 electoral college votes is Wisconsin. Wow. So this is the state that you, you just can't miss. And it's why Trump has been here twice in the last three weeks. Uh, he had a convention in between. And it's why Biden is coming here now. Mm-hmm. And it's why if you're a volunteer, you should you should put some hours in calling Wisconsin voters and we can use your help at wisdoms.org slash volunteer. Mm-hmm. Now, why is that worth it? Let's say you do not give a wit about either candidate. Let's say you don't like them. You can still ask yourself, who would you rather have be president when the country is debating and hashing out the issue that you do care about? And it's hard to imagine uh, that you know, if you, if you care about climate change or you care about gun violence or you care about racial injustice or if you uh, care about women's rights or you care about human rights or you care about workers' rights, uh, and a lot of these things are very overlapping. No matter what your issue is, Joe Biden is someone who can actually listen. And he's someone who doesn't just bulldoze everyone in his path. And with this president, you're not going to make any headway. Now, you know, Biden has an agenda and you should read his agenda. And I think you might be surprised by how much you like his agenda. Uh, The alternative to Biden is somebody who has been bringing a battering ram to the kind of doors of a, a democratic system. And if you talk to people who've been looking at authoritarian countries and countries where democracy has collapsed, it typically doesn't happen as fast as it's been happening here for the last four years. Uh, we're on a path right now that looks a lot like uh, Turkey under Erdogan. It looks a lot like a lot of stories that are not supposed to happen here. And it's going to be very difficult to come back from that. I, I became involved in politics because I had the experience of my own voice and the voice of you know, my, my friends and peers mattering in political outcomes that, that affected our lives. And the best promise of this country is, is that it's a place where every person is created equal and is treated equal in the eyes of the law and has equal voice in the doings of our government. That is the vision, never attained, never close to attained, but that is what we're trying to drive for and strive towards. But in Trump's America, it doesn't matter what you think unless you are part of his small coterie of, of a kind of collected elite. It doesn't matter. If you don't look like him, your voice doesn't matter. It doesn't count. If you're not, you know, one of the one of his favorite people, maybe a member of his family, you, you actually don't count. And that's a future where your power is taken away. The power that comes between elections, your power, your ability to, to shape the kind of world that you want to live in. That is just not something that I want my kids to grow up in. And I, I hope um, I hope it's something that no kid has to grow up in. Mm-hmm. So for me, that is 
the thing that made me fall in love with politics is is the thing that's on the line in this election and we've just got to win Ben, i have one other question about phone banking because you've mentioned it a number of times and when you can't knock on doors it is sort of the way you can reach people that or postcards is the other alternative and i'm wondering if you have an opinion as to which is more effective what i worry about is i don't answer the phone when I see a number I don't recognize. So I'm wondering how many dials it takes to get one person to answer the phone. Whereas if you mailed a postcard to somebody, they'll see it. Uh, and are postcards effective if, if they do see it? So postcard, it depends on what the postcard says, but a well-run postcard campaign can be very effective. The, the truth is the research around voter contact, direct voter contact is that different voters respond to different particular stimuli. And uh, people also respond to getting multiple forms of contact. If you're a voter and you're, you kind of want to vote, but you got a lot going on or, you know, whatever absentee ballots seem complicated. If you get a phone call and a text message and a postcard and you see ads when you open YouTube and you see ads when you, you know, watch TV, at some point, the next phone call or text message might be the one that, that gets you to actually turn off the show and get your absentee ballot requested. And like everything in life, you know, getting multiple forms of contact over an extended period of time, especially when there's a deadline coming up, um, that combination is the best thing. So the truth is I don't want everyone to do the one best tactic. I want a, a mix of all the different things that added together work and they'll work different ones will work different amounts of well for different people. Um, the, the best recipe is a recipe that has all the ingredients in it. And I, um, that kind of means that as a volunteer, you should do the thing that you find most satisfying among the menu of, of, of tactics that there's some actual you know, science and research behind there being part of an effective program because your motivation to spend hours and hours doing it um, will determine the total volume of direct voter contact you do. Doing something you hate, you're probably not gonna do it for very long. So. I would say try a bunch of stuff, find the one you love, and then do a ton of it. And do people answer the phone? Am I wrong on that? Um, they do. I mean, the, a typical call goes unanswered, but if you do a lot of calls, you'll talk to a lot of people. And then there's also something called an auto dialer, which is a tool where if you have a bunch of people making calls at once, it actually places all these calls simultaneously and then connects you. Like it's what telemarketers often use. Um, so that when you're using an auto dialer, you're just having conversation after conversation after conversation. You don't have to wait for the ring. Uh, um, it is more complicated to use. It's more expensive to set up, but um, I think there'll be a lot of auto dialing going on at the end of the cycle. Uh, I would also say like, you know, we should, anyone who lives in a battleground state should be prepared for their phone to ring off the hook, their text messages to go off like crazy. Social media to be full of posts and ads. It's going to be wild. Yeah. Um, do you know if like in-person campaigning will resume? Like I know um, one of my former teachers emailed me the other day and she was like, am I able to go to Wisconsin in person to help volunteer? Um, uh, and I told her to go to your website, but do you know um, if there will be um, any like in-person efforts um, before November? Or do you think it'll mostly remain like a virtual world? Uh, I think what I know and I really appreciate about the Biden campaign is that they're in constant touch with public health experts about what is what is safe to do. And the question of what is safe to do is not like, if you're the most safe, conscientious person, can you do this safely? It is, if we ask thousands of people to do this, will it be safe overall? And so, you know, I would guess that 
you know, yard sign distribution is happening right now. And that is, that involves the actual physical world. But I would, and I would guess that there are some specific things that happen. I would guess that we're not going to go back to the world where there are thousands and thousands of people packed into spaces, you know, cheering for the candidate. Um, and that's something that I miss about other election cycles, but the medium is the message in part, right? Biden is showing through how he's campaigning that he really cares about your safety and about getting through this pandemic. And for Trump, uh, he's had a string of events that leave people with coronavirus in their wake, like Tulsa. And uh, that is just not a direction we want to go. Well, um, this was such a great conversation. And Ben, we really appreciate um, you, know, you spending some time being here with us. Um, and we really hope that we win Wisconsin big in November because, like you said, our democracy um, depends on it. So no pressure. <laughs> Thank you so much, Victor. Thank you so much, Jill. It's really been a pleasure and a great conversation. We hope you listening also enjoyed this episode. Be sure to follow us on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook, and send us suggestions, ideas for future topics, and speakers you'd like to see via Jill, myself, or our website. Lastly, Intergenerational Politics is now on Apple Podcasts, so be sure to subscribe and rate our channel to support us. Thanks for listening, and see you on our next episode.